Welcome to episode 157 of The Recovery Show. This episode is brought to you by Gordon. They use the donation button on our website. Thank you, Gordon, for your generous contribution. This episode is for you. We are friends and family members of alcoholics and addicts who have found a path to serenity and happiness. We who live or have lived with the seemingly hopeless problem of addiction understand as perhaps few others can. So much depends on our own attitudes, and we believe that changed attitudes can aid recovery. Before we begin, we would like to state that though we at The Recovery Show may be in a 12-step program, we represent ourselves rather than the program. During this show, we will share our own experiences. The opinions expressed here are strictly those of the person who gave them. Take what you like and leave the rest. I hope that you will find something in our sharing that speaks to your life. My name is Spencer, and I'm your host today. Joining me is Pat. Welcome, Pat. Hi, Spencer. How are you this morning? Ah, it's a beautiful morning. So, not that, you know... I'm doing fine. Not in consequence of it being a beautiful morning, but it being a beautiful morning definitely contributes. How about yourself? Uh, I've already been out for a nice long walk with my dog and I've had my morning espresso, so uh-huh. I'm on good track right now. All right. The first segment of today's episode of The Recovery Show will be our discussion of our topic, Seeing Clearly. Following a short break, we will talk about our lives in recovery, about how we practice these principles in all our affairs. We will follow that with your email or voice contributions and some brief news about the podcast before closing. Our topic today is third in a series on the gifts of Al-Anon, which are described in the book From Survival to Recovery on pages 268 to 269. Today we'll be looking at this one. Our sight, once clouded and confused, will clear and we will be able to perceive reality and recognize truth. Other episodes about the gifts have included Joy, Fulfillment, and Wonder, episode 144, and Worthy of Love, episode 148. So when I was preparing for this, um, I'm going to read the gift again. Our sight, once clouded and confused, will clear, and we will be able to perceive reality and recognize truth. So I was looking at readings and I decided to pick up a book that we don't often use in our Al-Anon rooms in my area, and it's Discovering Choices. And the titles of the chapters really, I thought, applied very nicely. And it's a book that has a lot of sharing, but the introduction to the chapters are short, and and then it has a lot of people's stories. Um, But a lot of the readings will be from those chapter introductions today. So... Regarding our sight once clouded and confused, in chapter 3, page 39 of Discovering Choices, quote, if we're afraid of being alone, we might keep holding on to a relationship that has been important to us for many years, even if it is harmful to us now. Well, denial often serves the purpose of helping us to cope with the effects of alcoholism. It blinds us to the true nature of our approach to relationships. Our vision of life can become very narrow. Much like the alcoholic, we don't realize how much alcoholism has changed us. Living with an alcoholic, drunk or sober, can be a mind-altering experience. We are often told not to believe what we see. We begin to doubt ourselves and learn to mistrust our instincts. In time, we may feel that our perceptions and beliefs are invalid, and we shouldn't feel the way we do. Our bearings are lost. End quote. And also from chapter 2, page 24. For those of us with relationships affected by alcoholism, nothing fits quite right from day to day. We know confusion, pain, and despair. 
Days are often spent reviewing the past where nothing can be changed or rehearsing a future that hasn't yet happened. Meanwhile, we completely miss the present moment. As the effects of the illness progress, we become increasingly out of touch with ourselves and isolated from others. That's the end of that quote. So, Spencer, how did you feel your vision was clouded before you can't you found the program? I have to say I have connected with so much uh, in both of those readings. It's been a while since I've looked at that book, so thank you for, for pulling that out. Where are we here? Living with an alcoholic can be a mind-altering experience, and man, is that true. Uh, we begin to doubt ourselves and learn to mistrust our own instincts. And then days are often spent reviewing the past where nothing can be changed or rehearsing a future that hasn't yet happened. And we become increasingly out of touch with ourselves and isolated from others. When I was preparing for for this episode, the first thing that came to my mind about clouded and confused, and I think this is maybe more on the clouded side, is, is my denial of what was really going on. My denial of the apparent, well, clear in, in after vision that my loved one is an alcoholic. Uh, I was not ready to admit that, and so I just believed it was not true. I, it became clear to me after a while that she needed to drink less, but that that idea of alcoholism just was not there, not there for me. I would do and say things that just came straight out of that denial, and and I'm not pulling up specific examples from my memory right now. That's what I'm trying to do. That's why I'm kind of waffling, but... Uh, so that was the first thing was denial. In the reading, it also pulls out some some other effects here um, that what we perceive, I guess, part of as a result of the denial to some extent, you know, I didn't see what was happening. Um, I didn't understand what was happening. And a big part of the uh, the confusion for me uh, is that I thought that that this was my thing to fix. And I think this is this is something that maybe had always been true that that whatever was wrong uh, with the people I loved, whatever issues, problems they were having, um, you know, I needed to fix them and I needed to be I could fix them. This is this is the illusion. Um, this is the confusion that you know, I can fix the way somebody else behaves. And fix also, I guess, is sort of a controlling term there because maybe they don't want to be fixed, as it were. Maybe they don't want to be the way I want them to be. Yeah. And I think back, actually, even before alcoholism directly entered my life, although, as I've said in, in some previous episodes, I believe that that there is a, an effect of alcoholism through through the generations to me and that I learned codependent behavior, certainly, in my family of origin. When I was in college, I think I was a freshman in college, yeah, because I visualize my freshman dorm room when I think about this incident. Um, my girlfriend at the time came back from, uh, I think it was winter break, and disclosed to me that she had been date-raped. 
my thoughts immediately started going to this place of what can I do to fix this? And not only was it not necessarily, I mean, she didn't ask for any help, but I was all set to just jump in there and, and do whatever needed to be done. And I think, thank whatever higher power I might have that, in fact, I, there was nothing practical for me to do at that moment, so I didn't try. It's indicative of, of where I started from and then getting into a relationship with an alcoholic and, and having that alcoholism develop. That mindset of mine just kicked really into high gear. And again, I didn't really know what to do. Um, all the things that I tried didn't, didn't seem to have any effect, uh, didn't help. And and that in itself is a mind-altering experience because when you keep trying something and it keeps not working, but it's the only thing that you know how to do, we begin to doubt ourselves and learn to mistrust our own instincts. And so that led to this withdrawal from from the world, uh, this isolation that that I I dove into, and at a higher level or maybe a deeper level, I don't know, um, not seeing all the other stuff that was going on in my life because I was so focused on this one thing. I focused in on on the alcoholic behavior and how it was apparently ruining our lives. And, and I was not able to see the things that were right. I was not able to see the things that, that were going well. I was not able to see, um, you know, the happiness that could be there because I was so focused on, on the negative. How about yourself? Oh, gosh. <laughs> there is so much on this one. Um, I like the visual that starts with this, our sight once clouded. Visually, it gives me a sense of, it implies impaired vision, that you can only see a short distance ahead, the, the lacking of perspective. Um, and, and you mentioned it, the denial was so strong. Um, part of the denial was, um, and it ties into this being told not to believe what we, what we see. And that happened. I, I wasn't seeing, when I first came to rooms, I, it reminded me of a, I think I've talked about it on the show before, but when I first came to Alan on the very first meeting, I had no proof. I thought I had to be able to prove that there was a drinking problem. Um, and I had no proof. He was so very good at hiding the evidence. But I, but what I walked away from that first meeting with was, that's okay. I didn't have to have the proof. I just could focus on the behaviors. Um, but until that point in time, I had such doubts in my own perceptions and what I'd seen, but was always told, no, no, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. And it, and it was exactly that. What someone else could see easily in a heartbeat, I couldn't see at all. And it was coming to the rooms that started clearing away those clouds. And there was a lot of guilt and regret. And I, because I didn't have a name or a label for the alcohol abuse I grew up in a family where I was taught codependence also, not because of abuse, because uh, in trying to teach me to do the right thing, my um, father had a bit of a mantra that was, when you do things right, everybody's happy. If you don't do things right, they're unhappy. <laughs> and 
that ties beautifully in with my own personality. And so perfectionism was already a very strong suit mm. when I got into the primary alcoholic relationship in my life. And so I didn't see my life as ruled or governed or affected by alcohol abuse. I just saw that it wasn't perfect. It didn't match an imaginary perfect world and perfect family and perfect parenting was supposed to be. And it really was clouded. All I could see were just a few inches in front of my face. So I, I think of myself back then and just trying so hard all the time, always to do exactly the right thing. And any kind of criticism, any kind of feedback at all was a message to me that I was not perfect. I was inadequate. I wasn't doing a good enough job. So there's a huge amount of guilt and regret that was associated that with that. I, those are those are the things about having really clouded vision. And it also one of the readings mentioned a narrowing vision, and that was true for me also. Everything was black or white. Everything was yes or no. It had to be. Right husband's way or my way you know there's there was no understanding of how to collaborate how to work together how to problem solve all of those traditions that we learn in Al-Anon that help us work well in a group and in partnerships I didn't have any of those skills and I think living with an alcoholic took my immaturity and inexperience and and really I just marched myself into a corner. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, I'm looking also at the bit about living in the future. I think I forgot to, to, to talk about that, but that was you know, re- living, reviewing the past round thing can be changed or rehearsing a future that hasn't yet happened. And so I could spend, well, it certainly felt like hours uh, lying awake in bed at night uh, may not have actually been ours most of the time, but that's what it felt like because there's no outside clock involved here. It's just whatever's going on inside my head, reviewing the things that went wrong Uh, today, yesterday, this week, this month, this year, this life, but also mostly projecting awfulism into the future, projecting catastrophe into the future. And, you know, that's not a fun place to be, to be living in a future where everything has gone wrong and I've lost everything that, that was ever good in life. And, and that was, that was where my brain would take me. And I think, you know, I don't know if that's clouded vision or confused vision or both, but not being able to be realistic about what was happening meant that I was also not able to be realistic about what might happen or might not happen. And to recognize that it might or might not happen. I think also the fact that the things that I was trying to do to control, to change the situation, the fact that those things weren't working made it a lot harder for me to have hope about things getting better and, and so the only direction, because I couldn't see very far and I couldn't see very clearly, the only direction that I could see things going in was was worse. Yeah, and I kind of um, 
separated out being clouded in terms of my view of things and confused in terms of how I how I acted. I really like how you said that about living. I said paradoxy living in the future, and you just described it much better than I could have. So thank you. Confusion, I think, also spoke to me of those actions that I took trying to fix things and trying to make things right and trying to do a good job that were were really ineffective. You know, I was confused about how I could respond in a way that was helpful. And so it really makes me think of the four M's the, the, that you have a episode on martyrdom, manipulation, mothering, and managing. And I really was a fixer and a manager. And I thought that would help the situation. I thought, and I was responsible for everything. I was the, the prime wage earner in my family. And I just took everything on. I even to the point where if someone offered help, I would always say no. I thought I had to do it all myself, even when somebody offered help. And can you imagine how hard that is to live with if you're the the partner, if you're the alcoholic? If even when you try to help out, your partner always says no. And it makes it seem like they're always saying no because they don't think you can do anything. Really, I was saying no because I thought I had to do it all myself. And I had, I had no, I mean, I just think about, it. I was so young when I got in that relationship, I think it was 23 years old when I was pregnant and, and married. And I had no understanding of boundaries or healthy relationships or how to nurture them. There was a book when we were growing up, I think it was called Brian's Song. And it was, God was first, everybody else was second, and I am third. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Yes. It seems like a really nice thing to think way to think about the world until you do it. And if you're always third, it means you're never taking care of yourself and you you are often hungry, lonely, angry, or tired because you're always doing things for everybody else and not for yourself. And I I didn't value myself enough to put myself on an equal playing field with everybody else. And I also didn't believe I was lovable. Um, so that again tied in with that, you know, if you don't think you're lovable, for me, that meant that every time anybody had any feedback at all, I, I was inadequate. I was a bad person. I was not good enough. I was not lovable. There was just a lot of confusion. So I think that's all pretty confusing perspective right there. I remember the four M's and, and how that helped me to really see how I was confused about the ways in which I related to other people, the ways in which I related to situations that, uh, you know, to some extent, those were, those were the ways that I understood about how to, how to affect change, how to, um, how to relate to somebody. I really remember coming into Al-Anon and hearing people talking about how I had choices. They, they would talk about how they had, found choices, that they had choices, and that we could ask for what we wanted. And my thought was, I don't have to manipulate my way into getting what I want. (laughs) It just seemed so improbable that, that I could just ask for what I wanted and get it. And wow, where did I learn that? You know, I don't know. 
confusion about boundaries. I didn't have boundaries. At least I didn't understand the boundary between myself and the rest of the world. I didn't I did not have a clear picture of where I ended and where you started, where others started and in consequence this leads or certainly contributes to this character trait of of being a fixer, being a manager of of believing that it's my job to to fix everything, to control everything. Because if I don't know where I end, I don't know what's the boundary of what is actually mine to do. I don't know what's mine to do and what's not mine to do because I, I it's it's all fuzzy. It just kind of extends out to infinity, getting cloudier and cloudier as it gets further away. And so that leads to confusion about what what I can do, what I can't do, what I should do. It, it certainly isn't looking back with more clarity now a, a, an easy way to live. Now, I um, that's something that that also reminded me is how much I avoided any kind of conflict or disagreement. You know, you were asking about that we have choices and it's okay to ask for what we want. Mm-hmm. But I was, I was so much a controller that if I got, if I were to bring it into conversation, if I were to ask other people what they wanted, then what, what if they didn't want to do what I wanted to do? What if I didn't get my way? Then I wouldn't get my way. And, and somehow, I was really sick with thinking <laughs> somehow if I was, it was this fear that if I didn't get my way, things weren't going to work and then things were going to go cattywampus. Mm-hmm. And so I couldn't bring things to other people. I couldn't open it for discussion because, and there weren't more options than one because, and it wasn't going to go right. And it, was gonna, it was a very fearful way of thinking, very much in conflict avoidance and in disagreement was, was not to be looked at. I remember going to a educational event that was sponsored by work and they divide they had done a psychological profile on us and then they had us divided into two groups and I had no you know you didn't know why they had divided you into the two groups and they put the word conflict on a piece of paper in the room and the group that I was with we could hardly deal with that word we came up with just a few tiny phrases, most of which centered around hate it. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> and then we turned around and we shared ours first. And we turned around the other group said all this crazy stuff like opportunity for improvement, opportunity to have a conversation, opportunity to hear other people's ideas. <laughs> it was like, guys are nuts <laughs> i just seriously at the time i was i it was so emotional for me i had my arms crossed and i was quite literally near tears it was so distressing for me to even have the word conflict written on a piece of paper mm. and have to be talking about it in this professional environment it's really stunning to think about me being that person so long ago Maybe it's time to move forward into the the people that we are becoming. Yay! And how we're living into the second half, into the promise part here. 
which says we will be able to perceive reality and recognize truth. And there, again, are a couple of readings. So this one's from chapter 7, which is on page 110 of the book Discovering Choices. And by the way, I will put a link to uh, the Al-Anon website where you can buy that book uh, into the show notes for this episode at therecoveryshow.com slash 157. Step four and step 10 are very important to our efforts to improve the quality of our relationships with others. If we are confused about who we are, how can we understand what we want in our relationships? An unbalanced self-image could create problems in how we behave. If changing ourselves is crucial to enjoying our relationships, how else could we know what we can change without a thoughtful inventory of our strengths and weaknesses? The inventory steps bring us gently back into balance with ourselves and eventually in our relationships as well. The effects of alcoholism may have twisted our beliefs, attitudes, thinking, and feelings. A searching inventory of ourselves helps us recognize distortions in our self-image and show us how to reshape what no longer serves us well. As our self-awareness changes, we may find an increase in self-esteem, a diminished sense of guilt, and a greater peace in our lives. Whether or not others continue the same behaviors as before, our reactions change and outcomes are different. We make new choices when we let go of the warped ideas that colored our perceptions. Gradually, as we replace old patterns with new ideas, we begin to change. As a result, so do our relationships. Genuine care for our new Al-Anon friends might cause us to question our old attitudes about friendship and love. We are urged to notice the difference between love and control. There is a tremendous freedom to be experienced when we let go and let God. By allowing others to decide for themselves how to live their lives and face the consequences of their actions, good or bad, without our interference, we could become free to concentrate on what is truly ours to change. And another, it is much easier for us to mind our business when we have clarity and understanding of who we are. Al-Anon shows us that it is possible to be satisfied and happy no matter what is going on around us, including whether or not the alcoholic is drinking. When we are being good to ourselves, we are better able to make a positive contribution to the lives of all those we love, including the alcoholic. As I was sitting here, I was thinking about that first moment for me where my sight cleared maybe just briefly and I was able to see a little slice of reality for what it was. And that that happened mm, 14 years ago. Wow. My wife was in treatment, and I had gone up for Friends and Family Day. In that day, there were presentations by the therapists. There were some workshops, and there was a meeting uh, one-on-one or two-on-one, I guess, because both of us meeting with uh, a therapist uh, in in their office, and I remember sitting sitting outside the office waiting for our our turn, and she turned to me and said, "I'm really scared. I don't know if I can live sober." That was jolting. That was not what I wanted to hear. I wanted her to say, "Yeah, this is great. I'm going to be sober when everything's going to be wonderful." You know, uh, it's not what she said. Uh, There was a little bit of reality there, but the real wake-up occurred sometime during that day. Uh, 
and and actually the the moment that I can pin down actually felt a physical change was when one of the people who was doing a presentation talked about the fact that I didn't cause my wife's alcoholism, that I couldn't cure it and that I couldn't control it. It was like this light shone down and, and said, and, and, and I realized in that instant my powerlessness and accepted it. And it was freeing. It almost literally felt a weight come off of me. And that's what it felt like. And like I said, that's the moment at which that, that I can say the first time that, that I really had a brief moment of, of clarity of vision and, and was able to see the reality of the situation that not only was I powerless over her drinking, um, not only might she not actually find sobriety, but that my life had been severely affected and that I needed help. Because up to that point, it had not been my problem. It had been her problem, and she needed to fix it, and then everything would be just fine. So there was a whole bunch of, a whole bunch of clarity that came to me in that afternoon about her disease, about my inability to do something about it, and about the fact that, that I needed to do something about me. And it was that evening that I went to my first Al-Anon meeting. That's how much <laughs> clarity occurred to me in that, in that one, you know, those few hours that afternoon. Um, and it's not to say that I kept that clarity, but uh, it definitely enabled me, motivated me, moved me uh, to get myself to a meeting, um, which was another eye-opening experience. And maybe I'll talk about that um, in a little bit. How about yourself? Oh, um, you know, when I first read this promise, I thought, gosh, it's kind of the whole program. <laughs> <laughs> but the part I tried to separate out, you know, you always do this great thing where you say, I'm going to unpack that phrase. So I tried to separate how, how does perceiving reality change from being able to recognize truth? Yeah. Um, and I love, I love your story there. That's, that's just right on. And I think I spoke a little bit to this earlier, but I think, you know, getting to the point of being able to perceive reality really is working the steps. It's the program and the, the reading mentioned step four and step 10, but it, it's that, you know, every time I'm working the program, you know, we get these series of aha moments all through our time in the program. And it, they're there because we're working the steps and we're using the tools. And I was asking my friend Angela about what this phrase meant to her. And one of the things she said is she thinks of perceiving reality as decluttering my life and my life hmm. in a way that prepares me for future growth. And I really, I really liked that, that the, the clutter was, you know, it kind of gives me a sense of clutter hemming you in with all these junky thoughts and you're clearing that out and it, and it creates a clear hmm. path for future growth. I really like that. But it, it does seem this part about perceiving reality doesn't seem like 
it's a lightning bolt and we suddenly see everything in the whole world clearly it's this you know one step at a time one day at a time moving out it's um, we'll talk more about it in our lives and recovery but it is really great when you're able to look back and go wow you know i'm a really different place than i was 10 years ago 11 years for me so um, that was kind of the perceiving reality part. I think the tools do a lot for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then recognizing truth. That was, that was interesting. One of the things, and I'm going to talk about it first, because it kind of ties more into the beginning part and where I was to begin with is, yeah, it turned out my husband really was lying to me. And there's a lot of manipulation going on. And part of seeing the truth was able to see the, the dynamics of what was actually happening. One of my big aha moments was we kind of talked a lot about stay or go, but it was when I finally really saw myself in my relationship with my first husband as thinking, wow, if somebody else, if I were looking at somebody else's relationship and it looked like this, I would ask them, is that what you think a marriage should be? Mm-hmm. Is that what you would want from that relationship? Is that what you think that relationship should be? And I've been in Al Anon for at least a year at this point in time. And the answer was a really clear no. And the other question I was able to ask myself is, is this the relationship you want to give your children as an example of what a marriage should be? And how one should treat themselves. And for me, you know, I realize there, there are others who stick with it and, and have very positive, good relationships. But for me, the answer was no on both accounts. That was when we separated and then ultimately divorced. Um, but that was a really clear vision of being able to see myself from the outside, gaining perspective. A lot of that tying into that truth truth was really actually bottom line is someone telling me the truth or not i mean it was that that basic so that was really important and it helped me start taking care of myself and making decisions for me rather than only for everybody else or what i thought was the best for everybody else it seems like choices is kind of a sub theme in here Uh, i have a friend in the program And something she's often said, and it just always rings so true, is that you don't know what the best choice is for anybody else. You can make a choice and think it's the best choice for them, and it could be the very worst. It could be completely enabling that puts them off in a completely wrong direction. You may make what seems like a horrible choice to you, something that ends up with your loved one hitting rock bottom but that may be the best thing for them too you have no way of predicting what is the best for somebody else so you have to start making those choices about what's what's the best to do for you in an honorable humble compassionate way with regards to everybody else around you absolutely absolutely I think about perceiving reality and, and, and recognizing truth and, and how I have come 
to be able to do those more and more through the program. And the, the 12 steps really have been a huge part of that journey. Uh, and the reading specifically mentioned steps four, which is our searching and fearless moral inventory, and step 10, which is continue to take inventory, personal inventory. I forget the exact wording. For me, almost all of the steps really are in there. I think that the core four through nine, which are the sort of self-examination and uh, commitment to change steps, really are the core of that. Uh, Although for me, step one, admitting my powerlessness, recognizing my powerlessness was the beginning of that. That was that first crack in the fog crack in the fog, gap in the fog, whatever. Doing the inventory, seeing, starting to see the reality of who I am, the reality of how I relate to other people, the reality of how I act, admitting that to my higher power, to myself and to another human being in step five uh, begins the path begins for me the path towards ownership of who I am, how I act, what I believe. Uh, And step six, which is this one that when you first read it, became entirely ready to have our higher power remove all our defects of character. You say, what's the action in that? At least I did. Like, what do I do here? How do I do that? How do I become entirely ready? I just sit down and I say to myself, okay, be ready, be ready, be ready. No, that that, that doesn't work for me. Um, And what I've come to see it as uh, is that step of real ownership of the stuff that I discovered in the previous two steps. To really say, yes, this is truly what I am. This is truly how I am. This is truly who I am. There are parts of that, that of who I am, of how I act, of what I do and what I believe that no longer serve me well. And those are what has is labeled in the steps, my character defects. These are things that might've served me well when I was a child or when I was in some other uh, situation, but they no longer serve me well. This is a further opening of my sight to see not only is this something that, that I, that I own to, but that it's part of me. I own it and I want to move forward. I want to move in a different direction. We say these words forward, like it's, you know, there's a value judgment forward and upward. Um, I want to change. Um, And, and, that's a further opening of my sight, a further recognition of the of of that particular little bit of truth. Um, and in step seven, then releasing those shortcomings, those defects to a higher power to to remove is sort of the culmination of that process. And then we come back around to this hard self-examination in step eight, and we say, "Who did I hurt? Who have I harmed?" And again, I have to open my eyes. And in opening my eyes in step eight, 
I'm looking at not only recognizing where I have done harm, but also, and this is really, I think, really critical in the Al-Anon program, and I'm not sure about other 12-step programs, but in Al-Anon, there are many people that we believe we have harmed because maybe we thought bad things about them or whatever. And the, there's a really good discussion of that in the, the Step 8 chapter in the book um, Paths to Recovery about recognizing the people that we only think we have harmed, but we haven't really. And that in some cases, the person we actually harmed in, in those cases may have been ourselves. And so, again, more opening of the eyes to see who I hurt and who I didn't hurt or where I hurt myself in thinking that I might have hurt somebody else because I'm so ready to take on responsibility for whatever, you know, getting back to that discussion about cloudy sight and and no boundaries. And then step nine, making amends, really requires me to own those things that I did and to, to see what I might do to make amends, to make a change. Sometimes it's just an apology. Sometimes it's a total change in the way that I do things uh, to really make amends for a harm that I did in the past. You know, there are people that I've harmed in my past that are no longer in my life and I have no idea where to find them. I might not have even actually known who they were. I think a a great example in, in an open talk that I listened to is Uh, A woman talked about always being really mean to one of the checkouts at her local grocery store. She has, she didn't know that person's name. She has no idea where they are now. The way she makes amends for that harm is to always be courteous and pleasant to the checkout people in the store she, she patronizes now. Those are all steps of opening my eyes further, steps of recognizing what's real and what's not real, steps of seeing the truth of who I am, how I relate to the world, and how I want to relate to the world uh, in order to be the person that I want to be in recovery. Um, and there's another truth, like, who do I want to be? Mm-hmm. Um, that's, a, that's a journey that I really have only started sort of thinking about focusing on very recently, like, Okay, I'm 60 years old. Who do I want to be? Ah, well, I might have another 30 or 40 years of life where I might not. And who do I want to be in those, in those years? Who do I want to be in the next week? You know, that's what I talked about last week, right? Sort of what, what is my purpose in being here? And so there's, a, there's some more opening, some more recognizing truth about myself where I am right now. So I've talked for a while. I'm going to let you talk. Well, you know, it's interesting you brought up the steps because that's really true. That's where that recognition of truth comes from and is a, the core is step four, you know, who I am, both positive and negative. And I'm always going to probably dream, beat that drum. But I was thinking about my friend Angela when you're we talking about it. She goes, oh, recognizing truth. And she goes, this is the spiritual, a spiritual concept. She said, we are spiritual beings, not just beings. Mm-hmm. And I really like that. And that tied in, I thought, both the step three and step 11. And step three also, I thought, you know, I cannot move into seeking the truth until I've really worked a good step three. And I know I have a higher power 
that I can count on to be there for me mm-hmm. and is my safety net. So that's where I think people who are working the program for the first time and don't have a sponsor, you can make it all. I did this. I made it all the way through to step five before I, I had to get a sponsor for step mm. five. You can do that. But, but when I got to step six, I had to go back and relook at step three because I needed my higher power there and I needed to know my higher power with a depth that allowed me to have trust and faith and confidence in my higher power to support me through the rest of the process. You know, I was very practiced at looking at my bad sides. <laughs> that was not hard for me to do, um, but I needed to make it balanced. I came up with an image. It's like a tightrope walker, you know, carrying their balancing pole. And if you dump all the, all the defects of character on one end of the pole, and you don't balance it out with your looking at your assets on the other side, then you're going to fall off the wire. You're not going to be able to walk across that wire and get to the other side of that step four and step five process. Um, and I really like how you mentioned, I have never heard anybody talk about step eight like that, about, you know, that there are amends out there where you don't have to make amends. And that's what I really find in the process with my, sponsees. And so I think a sponsor working with a sponsor is a fabulous way, again, of seeing the truth, helping put things in perspective. Um, But oftentimes my sponsees have come to me with these lists of amends that they thought they had to make. And when we were able to work through it, they really had it narrowed down to just a few core true amends that need to be made rather than this kind of big wide net that cast over half the world. Yeah. Something else about recognizing truth. I kind of had written this all up. And then last night I was looking at it again and I realized this, there's one of the truth that Al-Anon really helped me recognize. And that was that my loved ones suffered from a disease, that they suffered from an addiction and deserved love and compassion regardless of whatever choices I made for myself or what stage of addiction they were in. And that was a really important truth because like so many people, I came to the rooms thinking alcoholism was a choice Mm -hmm. and recognizing that, my God, nobody would choose that for themselves to live that hard life, you know, and recognize that it's a disease that was that was an incredible truth that also was really changed the degree of my path that I was following and also prevented future amends from having to be made. It really helped me treat those around me, including those who are dependent, with humility and respect and love and compassion, but detachment. So that was that was a real game changer. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought that up. I was just looking at that that note, that sentence in in the notes here, and re- remembering how I was able to move from a position of anger and resentment of how can you do this to me, how can you do this to us, uh, to to recognizing that she was no more in control of what was happening than 
than I was, and I, and I had recognized that I was not in control, and that she did not want to be where she was. She did not want to be doing what she was doing. Mm-hmm. And being able to to see the pain in this vision, you know, there's this there's this sort of visualization of of God being your co-pilot and probably have heard the statement, if God's your co-pilot, you're sitting in the wrong seat. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And yeah. uh That's a good one. (laughs) And the vision that I had was uh, her sitting in a passenger seat of a car with her disease driving and she's screaming in terror. Mm. Oh, that's heartbreaking. Yeah. Well, and so that, was one of the steps towards getting this this recognition of the truth that she was in the grips of a disease. And that's what brought me to the point of being able to say, yes, I can stay. Yes, I want to stay in this relationship and, and wherever it might go. And if it had gone that way for another 10 years or so, uh, I don't know that I could have stayed there. But at that moment, I was able to say yes. And to, to be there um, and to be the support that I could be without trying to fix it. And that, you know, that ain't an easy task, I'll tell you what. Yeah. I was also thinking about, well, how did I get to that point of, of compassion, that point of recognizing the truth of her illness? And the answer is it was a lot of work. It didn't just come. Uh, it came from listening to other people's stories, whether they were Al-Anon's or alcoholics. Uh, a lot of open AA meetings. I probably went to a hundred open AA meetings in the first few years that I was in recovery. And hearing, hearing that story over and over again with different details from different people really drove home the point to me that, that this was not something she chose. This is not something she would do if she had a choice. Learning about the disease, one of the treatment centers that that she went to had a really good four-week series about alcoholism and addiction with a lot of of medical stuff, brought down to a level where I, who have a somewhat scientific mind, but I'm definitely not in medicine, uh, was able to follow, and and the effects on the brain and the um, evidence of uh, you know, genetic predisposition uh, to alcoholism or addiction, a whole bunch of stuff like that. And, and all that stuff together brought me to the place where after a couple of years, I was able to, to have that vision and have that compassion and to understand that I could love the person that was there, uh, even though the disease had completely obliterated any evidence of it to understand that she was still in there. And that was a truth that was not clearly evident. Um, that was a truth that I had to come to through a lot of work. I like also here where you, you talk about allowing me to see the behaviors. The beha- well, you know, I just, I just realized I misread this sentence, but what I saw was this cleared vision allows me to see the behaviors in my life for what they were. Sometimes lies, sometimes attempts at manipulating Oh. Unnecessary or inappropriate judging coupled with condescension. And what you actually wrote is, this cleared vision allows me to see the behavior of those in my life for what they were. Um, and I, I guess they're both true. 
Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'd have to fess that to to being on the other side of that equation also. Yeah. Okay, so just a little ending reading uh, from chapter one, page nine. Al-Anon gives us an opportunity to look at ourselves and understand how alcoholism has distorted our perspective hurt our self-image, and affected our ability to develop and maintain healthy relationships. It isn't unusual to enter the doors of an Al-Anon family group in a state of distress. Despite the confusion and chaos we may be experiencing, the program offers us hope that by improving our attitudes, we can live better, happier lives. They show us that our past failures don't have to limit our future growth as long as we are willing to learn new approaches. And I think that just is a lovely summation of of the hope mm-hmm. and that the program gives us. Yes, so much so. And uh, I guess what I would say to you, if you're listening and you're new, maybe you have just started an Al-Anon, maybe you haven't even gone to an Al-Anon meeting yet. Um, the sentence in there about hope, can you read that sentence again? Despite the confusion and chaos we may be experiencing, the program offers us hope that by improving our attitudes, we can live better, happier lives. They show us that our past failures don't have to limit our future growth as long as we are willing to learn new approaches. Yeah, that's why we're here. After a short break, we will continue with our lives in recovery, where we talk about how recovery works in our daily lives and in our meetings. And I always pick some musical selections that hopefully help to maybe see the see the topic from a slightly different perspective or illuminate some corner of the topic. And the first song that I picked, and this one was so obvious to me uh, as soon as I as soon as I titled the episode "Seeing Clearly," uh, I thought of this song by Johnny Nash, which has been covered by so many people. Um, I've seen it referred to as being by. Um, Bob Marley, uh, a bunch of other people have, have covered it. And the title is I Can See Clearly Now. You can listen to all the musical selections on the website at therecoveryshow.com slash 157. Um, as I said, this song immediately came to me when I was thinking about the topic. And, and it's been an earworm. It is an earworm for me for the last couple of days. Here's a few lyrics so it can be an earworm to you too. I can see clearly now. The rain is gone. I can see all obstacles in my way. Gone are the dark clouds that had me blind. It's going to be a bright, 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 sunshiny day. Oh yes, I can make it now. The pain is gone. All of the bad feelings have disappeared. Here is that rainbow I've been praying for. It's going to be a bright, bright, sunshiny day. In this section of the podcast, we talk about our lives in recovery, what's happening in our meetings and our lives this week. Pat? Oh, gosh. Well, um, my work went long on the day of my regular meeting, so I missed my regular meeting, which I was really sorry because my sponsor was doing um, humility. Uh, my sponsee, one of my sponsees was doing humility as a topic. It sounded like a really great meeting. Um, but I called in last week about my aha moment after we had an amends meeting. And so I've been working on on doing those living amends, um, uh, and uh, 
And actually, I I um, shared that it was is a direct amends, and I haven't done those very often. And I did a direct amends with my husband, my now husband, and um, it was around the way that I I fight fury when I'm really 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 angry. So I've been practicing dropping the rope and not tugging it. And that's that's been good. So. <laughs> so far, so good. Lots mm-hmm. of practice there. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing is I am temporarily in an old position at work. So they, someone's on leave. So they brought me in to fill that position in for six months. And it's, it's really neat. It's kind of what I was referring to where you get an opportunity to look back and see how far you've come. So this um, was an old position that I was in for um, 10 years and I have been out of for three years and I can see all these growths that I have um, that have really changed how I'm doing the role now. And it's such an improvement. It's very exciting. The other thing that's rather terrifying is I record all of the monthly meetings so I can get the minutes right and having to listen to my own voice for a month. I guess, Spencer, you have to do this every time you do a podcast. Um, but that is a real reality check. That is very helpful in recognizing um, truth and reality because you have to hear yourself interact with people in this group. And so it's been, I find it's a wonderful tool. I can really um, see how I still, re- I do this knee-jerk reaction. Somebody says something, I go, oh, well, well, that's taken care of here. You know, instead of just saying, oh, okay, that's good to know. Or let me think about that. Or, you know, a more open comment. So it's it's a really great tool, and I think it's reflective of my program that I can hear it and listen to it and just say, oh, yeah, there's an opportunity for improvement and not beat myself up, not perseverate on it. So that was, that's been a really interesting way that my program's been in my daily life. Um, worked on this podcast, which is great because it means a lot of reading, and sometimes it um, pushes me out of my normal paths of, of walking my recovery. It gets me out into a bigger space and trying something different. It was really great to kind of rediscover the Discovering Choices book and, and how much I like that. And I think I'm going to um, loan a copy of that to one of my sponsees. Uh, and then I had time with my sponsee um, who was working step four. And that, that was it's always a really positive thing. The other thing that happened was I had a conversation with my first husband. So we've been split for, I want to say, nine years. And I've been in Al-Anon for 11 years, something like that. Uh, But we talk occasionally. I was amazed. It was different from any conversation I've had with him since in the past 10 years. And it was really fun it was equal um he started out saying something about how he was doing and then he stopped himself and he goes no wait how are you doing what are you doing it's like wow that was so cool and that was where i was able to take a gift and receive a gift and not say no you first no i was able to to do a me first thing and, and say, well, this is what's going on with me. And it was, we talked for an hour. It was a radical change. So it's been many, many years coming, but it was really exciting to have that just lovely, positive interaction. Um, and I think I've said this before. I feel like I really love them as you love a family member. Um, 
not a husband, but a family. <laughs> mm-hmm. So that's um, that's my week in recovery. How about you, Spencer? How's your weekend? Oh, well, first, I just want to remember to say thanks to you for all the work that you did in preparing for the podcast, because I got I got partway into the sort of the outline, the, the discussion thoughts, and uh, ran out of energy or, or something, and you came back with this this wonderful set of uh, this wonderful outline and the and the breaking it down the the what, unpacking it uh, I thought was a great way to proceed also so thank you for that. Absolutely. I think I'm going to work a little bit backwards in my week here. So this morning I went to church and I have been participating. I'm, I'm sure I've mentioned this before. I've been participating as a mentor in uh, the program at church that we call Coming of Age, in which our ninth graders. Um, explore those those questions that sort of religion tries to answer about the meaning of life, about uh, what is God, is there a God, um, about uh, you know, life and death and service and friendship and all the all those things that that are that are big, and it culminates as it did this morning with um, a church service in which each of the young people in the program reads a statement of their, their beliefs as, as they stand today, because we recognize that our beliefs continue to evolve throughout our lives for most of us. Uh, so we don't say, don't, you know, you know, you don't have to tell us this is what you're going to believe for the rest of your life. You just tell us what you believe today. And it's always uh, one of the services that, a lot of people, including myself, look forward to every year. And it was different, a little different for me this year because I was sitting up there with the youth and introducing the the young man who I was being a mentor to this year and listening to each of them uh, talk about how they see their answers to some of these big questions. And not something that I think I would ever have gotten involved with before I found recovery. Uh, and so I, I definitely view that as as part of living my life in recovery that I'm able to, you know, share with one or a small number of uh, young people some ways of thinking, some ways of living that maybe they um, haven't encountered yet uh, or hadn't 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 thought about. That that what is it say in in the tradition attraction rather than promotion? So try to live recovery and hope some of it rubs rubs off maybe for for next year uh, at church the next school year i guess uh, i have volunteered to help out in the seventh grade class which is going to be a new experience for me i know i can relate to high school age kids i really love um, working with them and so we'll see how that works with with seventh graders who are a little bit younger a little bit um a little a little less mature uh but I know that there's a great team of teachers already there, uh, and both of the both of the people who've been doing it for a couple of years uh, came up to me this morning and said, "Oh, we're so glad you're 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 going to be with us next year." So, it's not something not something I could have done before recovery, and just all that anger and stuff that I was holding um, that I was carrying around with me just would not have it would not have been a pretty scene. I'll tell you. Uh, because at the slightest provocation, I would have gone boom, and they would have kicked me out of there so quick. Let's see. So yesterday, I went to my 
step meeting and the topic was step six about uh, becoming entirely ready to have our defects removed. I don't know. It seems like sometimes you hear new things and maybe it's new, new or maybe I just didn't realize I heard it before. Uh, somebody talked about the process of of grieving the loss of uh, our character defects, sort of pre-grieving, I guess, because that's part of being ready to, to let go, you know, and, and to think about as a person you know is approaching death, um, there there is grief uh, in the impending loss, uh, and it's it's similar these these things that have been so comfortable for me, these ways of doing that have been so comfortable. Um, I might have to actually grieve them, and and one person talked about for some of their character defects actually writing a goodbye letter to uh, to help with that process. And I thought, well, that's, huh, I never thought of that. And and I might think of, see if that's a tool that, that would help me in a couple of, of instances. I don't know. But as I was listening to the other people talking about step six and a couple of people talking about things that were happening at work, I realized that I actually had some stuff at work this week that really connected for me to the recovery process and allowed me to see how having done the steps and worked in recovery has made it easier to do some things at work. And so now I have to set up the situation. I was part of a project and I was actively part of it uh, for the last month and a half or two months. But the roots of the project actually re- reached back almost a year and a half uh, it didn't go as well as we might have hoped. Uh, there were some problems along the way, uh, and especially towards the end, there were a couple of uh, sort of real sharp changes in direction that were not handled with grace, let's say. Uh, and the pro- project ran longer than we had hoped and had to pull in a whole bunch of people right near the end in order to get it done. As is our practice where I work, we held a meeting, form of meeting that we call a retrospective, where the people who are involved in the project uh, come together and talk about what happened, talked about what we would like to do differently if we were to do it next time. In other words, what, what went wrong or what went suboptimally? Um, what are things that went well that we'd like to keep on doing? And to understand the the sort of the timeline of what happened. This was a fairly large group for this process. I think there were about 20 people in a conference room. Uh, And we worked on it in two separate meetings for about two and a half hours and got about two-thirds of the way through the process, um, which entailed first establishing the timeline, then everybody gets a pile of little yellow sticky notes. We love our little yellow sticky notes. We're personally keeping 3M in business. Writing down on on sticky notes one, one thought per note about things that we saw that went well, things that we saw that didn't go so well. Uh, they all get stuck up on the wall, then they can get rearranged and grouped into sort of categories, and then and then we talk about them. And during that process of talking about particularly some of the things that didn't go well. I saw, I heard a certain amount of defensiveness from some of the people who were involved. 
a certain amount of, of, of trying to maybe justify or excuse what had happened. Uh, and, you know, this is human nature. This is, this is natural. When things don't go well, we want to we wanna put ourselves in the best light. And even though this is a process that we've been doing um, for several years now, as as a practice in the organization, and we try to do this as openly and honestly and without blame as as we can, people still get defensive. It's an emotional reaction. And I realized that I don't have to do that. I don't have to feel defensive. I don't have to excuse the things that I was involved in that didn't go well the places where I misstepped, um, that the practice of doing this in my personal life for years, by practicing these steps, has freed me to a very large extent from this, this emotional reaction to want to make excuses, this emotional reaction to want to put myself in the best light. Wow. What a change. Yeah. What yeah. a change from from the guy who, if something went wrong, I, okay, when I was, I think, a freshman in college, so some years ago, about 40 maybe, a couple of friends and I, we wanted to use the the higher speed computer terminal that was in one of the uh, staff members' office, and that office was locked. And we managed to pick the lock with a toothpick, not a toothpick, a paperclip, but in the process broke the paperclip off in the lock. So now, like, you couldn't put a key in. This was actually in a trailer, and the trailer had two doors. So we swapped the doorknobs. This was in the middle of the night, of course. We swapped the doorknobs so that the doorknob for the back door was now where the front door was, and the the doorknob with the the broken-off paperclip in it was on the back. Well, when the staff person came in in the morning and tried to open the door. His key didn't fit because the two knobs had different locks, which of course we hadn't even thought of might be a possibility. And they very quickly figured out who it was and, and we received appropriate um, punishment. The point of the story for me is that my first instinct was to cover it up, was to pretend it never happened. And that's not who I am anymore. Maybe it took me 40 years to get here, but geez, it's so much easier. It's so much easier to not have to be worried about somebody discovering where I covered something up because it's all out there in the open. So yeah, big recovery in life thing. Um, and the other thing that happened this week that that sort of relates to recovery to seeing reality, um, I've talked about what's going on with this nerve thing in my neck. Uh, and I had a doctor appointment on Friday and I had been coming to over the last couple of months, uh, coming to an acceptance that probably the only thing that was going to fix the problem would be surgery to like either fuse a couple of bones in my neck together so they don't crunch down on the nerve or to apparently they can carve away a little bit of bone so it doesn't crunch down on the nerve because I, I have fairly constant, the word is not exactly pain because it's more numbness, but it's sort of achy numbness sometimes. And sometimes it feels like my arm is just a dead weight on the side of my body. It's not a pleasant thing, but you know, I can live with it. And, and I, there are palliative things I can do to, 
to, to reduce it. So I had come to this acceptance that, you know, probably he's going to recommend surgery. Okay. I don't really don't want people cutting into my neck and, and, you know, getting real close to those nerves because they could do some real damage if, if they're not doing it exactly right. And it's really scary. So I went in and we talked about it. We talked about what was going on. And he said, you know, I want to try something. I want to rule some things. Uh, you know, it might be, he said, it might actually just be uh, trigger points in your shoulder that are pinching the nerve. And if it's that, we don't want to do surgery. I'm like, well, yeah. Uh, so he did some, some tests, which basically involved him pushing hard on my, my shoulder muscles with his finger and saying, how about that? Do you feel that? I'm like, yes. Uh, <laughs> uh, and, uh, and so he did some, he did some little injections um, to try to sort of relax the trigger points. And I think it helped. So, we might be able to actually address this with physical therapy and exercise and stuff rather than surgery. But I had gone in there with this expectation that the reality was that it was going to be surgery and then found this reality that, you know, maybe that's not what it was. And so all that, all that sort of energy that went into being prepared to have my neck cut into didn't have to happen. I was really happy to accept a different reality. And, you know, we'll see going forward. I mean, it's 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 still a work in progress, but um, it does seem that that is at least part of the problem. So that would be really cool. All right. Oh, and what you said about listening to yourself. Yeah. <laughs> I listen to myself several times every week because I record the podcast. So I'm not really listening to myself when I'm recording. I don't have to listen to my recorded voice. Then I edit the podcast and there I hear all of my all of my defects of voice, if you will, <laughs> all of my ums and my you knows, and the way that I connect every pair of sentences with and or so or but or um or some combination or or some combination of those things, and I get to cut them out, which is cool. But I have to decide how much work I'm going to do on that if I really tried to cut them all out that could make the time I spend editing really, really long. And so there has to be a balance there between me wanting to look perfect and making, making the podcast really listenable. And one thing that I have come to, and then I listen to it again because I let my, my podcast app pick it up and I listen to it again whenever it comes around. And depending how far behind I am on podcasts, it might be the next day. It might be the next week. Uh, and one of the things that I've noticed is that when I'm in the editing mode, I really, really notice every little thing. I ne notice every little um and every you know. And when I'm just listening, mostly I don't notice them at all, even though they're still there, because I don't cut them all out. And there's some kind of lesson in that, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, and also I'm always amazed at how I feel like when I'm talking on the podcast, it's, it's this chopped up, disorganized thought. But I'm always amazed at how you create a cohesive story for your comments. How it's kind of, it, it's like a story. It has its kind of beginning and introduction and then the action. And it has kind of a final 
culminating lesson that it comes with. And, and you so often just create these off the top of your head. It's really pretty amazing, Spencer. I was just thinking that while I was listening to you, actually. There is, there is planning that goes into that structure. There really is. Uh, if I really just tried to do it off the top of my head, uh, it would not be anywhere near as organized. Even the ones that, that I have done where I'm, I'm holding my phone or my portable recorder in my hand as I walk through the woods and clearly, it, for the most part, not working from notes, uh, I still have thought about it and I've thought about how I want to structure it and what I want to say. Um, so as one of my mentors has said in the past, prior planning prevents piss poor performance. It's really true. Well, and I think that's where we all owe you a great debt of gratitude because the service you provide is just so amazing. And it's uh, one of the things I did with my sponsee this week was I helped her get the app on her cell phone so she can download the podcast every week and listen, look up the ones that she liked and listen to those. And it is an amazing resource of strength and hope and experience and stories and fellowship that you create for us every week on this podcast. And it's just a, a stunning service that you provide. And it is not just the hour of, of recording that you do on your Sunday mornings, but it, there's so much more work that goes behind the scenes. And so it's, it's a real appreciation. I know you get lots of letters saying that, but it's, it is a huge service you provide. Well, thank you. Um, I, I do appreciate it. every time somebody says thank you. I really do appreciate it. it um, even if it seems like, oh, everybody else has already said it, it just, you know, it gives me that little bit more that when it's Friday and I haven't figured out a topic yet and I don't have a co-host and I don't know what I'm going to talk about, um, gets me over that hump to say yes. I think I, I think I might've mentioned this in, in, in a, a podcast a few weeks ago, but part of the Part of this coming of age program um, is a weekend experience with the with the youth, where um, they do a service project. They do what we call a vision quest. They spend some time, as it turns out, about three hours um, sitting by themselves in silence uh, in the woods behind our church, far enough apart so they can't holler to each other. Um, just thinking about, and we give them some questions to sort of contemplate it, and I don't remember what they are right now. And then in the evening, um, there's a ceremony where we welcome them into the circle of adults. Part of that is that each youth is asked to write a question that they want to ask the adults of the congregation who are there at the ceremony. In the ceremony, each of them picks a question from this pot that may or may not be the one they wrote and then chooses somebody to answer it. And one of the questions that somebody asked was, um, is there meaning in life or how do you find meaning in life? I forget exactly now. I was chosen to answer and what I said was, the meaning in my life is the meaning that I create. The way that I know I'm creating meaning is because I hear affirmation from other people. That's what I'm trying to do here. One of the things that I'm trying to do here is create some meaning in my life. 
And so when you tell me that what I'm doing is meaningful, then I know that I want to keep going on that path. But it's, it's, it's also for me. It really is. I understand. So what are we going to do next? Well, uh, as somebody pointed out last week, we don't actually have an episode on step one. So that's coming up real soon. I actually had thought about doing that this weekend, asked a couple of local people, uh, and they were not able to, to do it. So maybe we can do that next week. Although I'm looking ahead and next weekend is really, really full of events. So I don't know. We'll get, we'll have something. Well, and then the weekend after I'm going to be traveling. So I really need to get a couple in the bank so that I can uh, put them out in this again. This is part of the planning and part of the, you know, what I'm doing. Anyway, so step one, how does admitting our powerlessness give us power? That one's that I like that question because mm-hmm. it does. I think it does. Mm-hmm. Um, how was your life unmanageable? And, you know, how does step one uh, help you to find your way into recovery? So we welcome your thoughts. You can join the conversation. Please leave us a voicemail or send us an email with your feedback or questions. And Pat, how can people send us feedback? Well, you can call and leave us a voicemail at 734-707-8795. You can call right now if you like. Uh, You can also use the voicemail button on the website to join the conversation from your computer. If you prefer not to use your voice, you can send email to feedback at therecoveryshow.com. We'd love to hear from you. Share your experience, strength, and hope, or your questions about today's topic of seeing clearly our upcoming topics, or any other topic you have in mind. The upcoming topic, again, is step one. If you have a topic you'd like us to talk about, please let us know. Hey, Spencer, where can the listeners find out about The Recovery Show? Well, that would be our website, which is therecoveryshow.com, where we have all the information about the show, including the notes for each episode, an occasional blog, links to the music we talk about, links to books, etc., etc., uh, we've also got links to some other recovery podcasts and websites that we like. And by the way, um, if you come across another recovery podcast or a, a recovery website that uh, you really like, uh, let me know because I can I can add it there. Um, I'm always looking for resources. And if you really want to join our conversation, as Pat did today, uh, consider being a guest host by phone or Skype or FaceTime or uh, whatever whatever works for us. Uh, email to feedback at com if you're interested, or check out com slash contact is a page that has all the different ways that you can get in touch with us and contribute your voice. Again, we'll take a short break uh, before we look at our email and voicemail bag. At the second musical selection, also available on the website, is Suddenly I See by KT Tunstall. And the, the title, to me, the title says it. Uh, we start to see more clearly as we work our recovery. And I, I, as I expressed earlier about my experience in, the, in that uh, treatment center, sometimes it happens suddenly. Uh, sometimes it happens in meetings uh, where somebody will say something that will enable me or cause me to see something in my life in a brand new way or to recognize something that I hadn't seen before. Um, I've had this experience so many times. And to me, this song captures that. That feeling, here's the chorus, suddenly I see this is what I want to be. Suddenly I see why the hell it means so much to me. 
Well, so this week we actually uh, have just a couple of voicemails. We'll start with one from Claire. Hi, Spencer. My name is Claire. I'm calling from Switzerland. I, ha- I actually have a food addiction, and I've been following the podcast for a while now, about, I don't know, half a year. I live in a house of addiction. It's not alcohol, but I can relate to pretty much all of the Al-Anon characteristics. I definitely relate. I want to thank you very much for your podcasts and for all the people that help. They're really a source of strength, and um, they get to the the core issues, the, the deeper issues that I used to eat about. I'm really grateful for that. That's exactly what I need to work on, and uh, all the sharing is is really helpful. I um, wanted to talk a little bit about uh, setting limits and boundaries and was wondering if maybe once there could be a podcast about that. I just realized it's especially in relationship to my parenting that um, it's it's really, really tough, and my kids are getting older and 15, 12, and 11, and the setting limits is, it's much, I don't know how to say it, but it's like um, it gets more tricky because maybe they get smarter. <laughs> I mean, they've already been, they've always been smart, but... Um, <clears throat> And I just am so faced with my inability or my my lack of confidence in setting boundaries. And I think it has to do with my own inner uh, difficulty because I just, I I think I haven't learned how to do that. And I, and I know that there are tools in the Al-Anon and I know that's a, that's a, a big topic and I think it would be really wonderful to hear some some of some of your experiences and maybe even in terms of parenting but I think before I can help my children and set limits for them I need to understand what my limits are and one one big problem that I find and I just don't know how to really express it is that I feel that I, I'm missing, like, the knowledge or the... And at that point, um, Google Voicemail cut her off. Uh, but I think that there's a lot to say here. Uh, Claire, thank you for calling. And while we've done a couple of episodes about boundaries, and I'll just I'll link those in the show notes and, of course, mention them right here, episode 103... Uh, is entitled Boundaries and is um, with a discussion uh, with Maria about boundaries and was inspired by an email from a listener who um, asked, do any of you out there have any personal experiences setting boundaries, um, setting ultimatums with your addicts that were not respected, acknowledged, or were met with insult? Uh, so there's that one. And there was an earlier show, episode number 44, titled Setting Boundaries Without Controlling. 
Uh, I forget exactly who were the guests on that one. I, I think that was with Kelly and Swetha. So um, I would encourage you to look to listen to both of those. You can you can find those um, on the website by going to therecoveryshow.com slash 103 or therecoveryshow.com slash 44. If you're using a podcast application on your phone or maybe a tablet, um, they will usually let you scroll backwards through previous episodes uh, until you find the one you're interested in. Some of them may even let you search. I haven't figured that out, but scrolling works reasonably well until you find the ones you're interested in. So again, those are 103 boundaries and 44 setting boundaries without controlling. We have not done one explicitly on setting boundaries as a parent around your children. And I think that's that's a really interesting topic that um, probably would merit uh, an episode of its own. Uh, you have thoughts on this, Pat? The only thing I can say, unfortunately, I did not get into recovery until after both my kids were pretty much out of the house. So um, it's one of the great regrets I've had to, to really let go. And it took a, a long time to not be able to uh, practice the principles of the program as a parent with children in my house. I know from friends that it is particularly difficult with kids because in setting boundaries, you don't have the luxury of uh, the final option being divorce, you know, mm-hmm. or having somebody move out. And with children, that's that's quite different. How it's a it's a finer balance. And they're also going through their own developmental stages, which means part of their job sometimes is resisting you. Part of their job sometimes is is saying no and learning what that means. Um, but I think in general, what I would say that I found is is setting boundaries is just very important. That and and our literature speaks to this: that when you set a boundary, you stick with it that you've thought about it very carefully. I'd recommend it if it's a really particularly difficult one to talk about it with your sponsor ahead of time, role play it a little bit with them. Think about the possible reactions you might get. And then whatever the consequences, be willing to stick with those consequences. And I think one of the great errors for me, and this doesn't apply directly to her situation was that, one of my children who was still at home when the drinking got at its worst was more of a co-combatant than a child. And we had each other's back and we were each other's support system. But that meant um, a loss of the parent-child relationship. Um, and that was very damaging in some ways to him. Hmm. So it's, um, well, it is, I think it is really worth a separate program. And it's also, I think there are two topics that I've heard brought up is parenting and and boundaries um, of parenting, especially children who are having addiction issues. And then the other topic of post-divorce or, you know, stay or go somewhere. I know this, you have one on that already. I think those are ones that would really do nicely with quite a few people in the room talking about it rather than... yeah the narrow focus of just one or two people's experience. Yep. Well, I always, I'm always looking for voices uh, to contribute. And so if, if you've got uh, experience with setting boundaries with children, um, sounds like 
pretty much teenage children's at this point, but for, for Claire, but in general, um, I'd love to hear your voice. So go to therecoveryshow.com slash contact and, and figure out which of those many possibilities you want to use to contribute your voice. Thanks. Got a voicemail also from Carrie. Uh, Carrie participated in the Mother's Day episode a few weeks ago, and there she had left a voicemail shortly before we recorded that episode. And um, I guess we weren't didn't want to have her voice in two different ways in that same episode, and so I was going to include it in the next episode, and I and I kind of forgot about it. So um, here it is now. It's still relevant. Hi there, it's Carrie from Texas. I just wanted to call in um, and thank you so much for taking my suggestion for, um, yeah, shutting down. Yeah, it's so amazing to um, be able to put a request out there and um, for you to do such a beautiful job. You guys, it was so nice to hear um, so many voices. Um, You did a reading in the beginning and this is me paraphrasing, sorry, I'm going to chop it up a little bit, but it was, it got to the point that when the person would hear the ice hitting the glass, that they would retreat to avoid conflict and criticism. And it's just amazing to me because that, I sure experienced that, even though I think I've seen my mom drink about five times in my life, but both of her parents drank pretty heavily yeah, I really related to that. And it made me think about it in a new way that, you know, as a child, I did have to use that as a coping skill to retreat and shut down and to protect myself. And now maybe as an adult, I'm future catastrophizing and I can do it differently. Now I can observe when I'm doing it, be gentle with myself. And when I feel steady enough, I can practice uh, new tools. And it was just really great to hear all the ways it shows up in all of your lives. And then it was nice to hear you guys talking and then just refer back to what I was saying. Um, so it was really wonderful. Thank you so much. Cause it really is something that has baffled me for years. I imagine I'll listen back to you all speaking, probably not me speaking, because <laughs> it is weird. And then also, I really do want to encourage listeners to call in if they're comfortable with it. Yeah, it's really, really lovely. Um, okay, thanks so much. Take care. Bye. And and thank you again, Carrie, for all the ways in which you've contributed to the show uh, and and for that suggestion. And I totally agree with you. I love to have more, more voices in the room. Um, it's just a matter of getting people there. So please call. Thanks. It doesn't cost you anything to listen to The Recovery Show, but we do have expenses which run about $60 a month. You can help to support us and keep us on the web and in your ear in a couple of ways. We have a donation button on the website where you can support us directly, just like Gordon did. We have put together a list of recovery-related books. If you click on the books link at the top of the page and you order one of these books from Amazon through our website, we'll receive a small commission. In fact, anything you order from Amazon after clicking on one of the links will help us. It costs you nothing extra and helps to keep us on the air. Thank you for your support in whatever form you give it, whether it's sharing the podcast with your friends, 
just direct them to therecoveryshow.com or just listening to us. We are here for you. Our last select song selection is um, by The Who, and it is I Can See for Miles. And I just love the song. It did the same earworm thing. I, I didn't know that phrase before, but it totally applies because I can immediately hear the refrain. But the, the lyrics, I know you've deceived me. Now here's a surprise. I know that you have because there's magic in my eyes. I can see for miles and miles and miles and miles and miles. Oh, yeah. And when they sing the miles and miles, it just feels like like you're in a bird's body and soaring and you can see just so far to the horizon, no clouds. That's just kind of how it makes me feel. And and the magic in my eyes, that's the program. So yep. it's just, I love that. It's a great, great one. Thank you for listening and please keep coming back. Whatever your problems, there are those among us who have had them too. If we did not talk about a problem you are facing today, feel free to contact us so we can talk about it in a future episode. My understanding, love, and peace growing you one day at a time.